0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast as we kick off season two. Now, while I'm sure that you're glad that 2020 is behind us, we all know deep down inside that just because the calendar flips, it doesn't mean that our challenges suddenly disappear. And to help us understand and solve for the long standing issues that we've either ignored or have been too slow to address, we're back to have the toughest questions with some of the most influential thought leaders that are not afraid to question the status quo. No matter your sector, healthcare corporate or higher education, we're all solving for the same things. And we'll learn what that means throughout this season. Now, our first guest has a visionary approach to education. And if you follow our movement, you were able to get a sneak peek at our virtual summit back in October of last year. His name is David Banks, and he's the president and CEO of the Eagle Academy Foundation and the founding principal of the Eagle Academy for Young Men. See, today we'll talk more about student centricity and the challenges that our educational system has encountered to adapt, transform and foster resilience as a way to better prepare our students for the ambiguity and opportunities of the future. And to help take our conversations to a whole other dimension without losing sight of our origin roots, we welcome back our dear friend, co-host and human specialist, Dr. Scott Lacey. Let's get started. So, David, thank you so much again. So, David, let's jump right into this because um, we've got some big topics to talk about. And the, and the first one I want to get your perspective on is what does student centricity, what does that look like, not just to you, but to your
1: organization? You know, the very, the very notion of centricity and keeping our young people at the center of the focus of the mission uh, that we're engaged with each and every day, uh, which is to educate our young people so that they can take their rightful place in society. I I don't believe that you can educate young people to the fullest measure, unless you are putting them at the heart and truly at the center of everything that we're trying to do. That, that has not happened, does not happen in most schools and most school districts. Uh, Very often, it is the interests of other adults that are at play. Um, It is specifically teaching content, but not necessarily making sure that you're teaching the students in front of you. So what I mean by that is you'll hear somebody very often refer to themselves as, I'm a math teacher. I'm an English teacher. I'm a social studies teacher. But really what you are, you are a teacher, and you're a teacher of young people. You happen to teach math. You happen to teach science or social studies, but your focus always remaining that you are a teacher of young people. It may seem like semantics, but it's not. It's it's, it's essentially like, what is your stated position and how do you see, as a teacher, how do you see your, your space in the world working with young people? And when you keep young people centered to everything that you do, meaning hearing their voice, What are their interests how are they interpreting what's happening around them all those things focus on how i see centricity and keeping the keeping young people
0: at the center of everything that we do in education so what gets in the way of centricity uh, David, I mean, you know, and we've discussed this before um, that, you know, we've uh, in education and higher education, you know, the institutions claim to be student centered, but they're really not. So what gets in the way and, and what fundamental change needs to happen to ensure that we're always putting the center, uh, the student in the center? Well, first of all, what gets in the way is our systems, systems
1: are representative of culture. Mm. And so you're talking about systems, you're talking about bureaucracy. Um, all of those represent a culture and a culture that has said, yeah, we're trying to help the kids as best we can. <laughs> but, but it really is the interests of adults that are more important. Mm. Making sure that the teachers um, are comfortable in their roles is, is, is more important. Making sure that The adults who are in service to children, uh, making sure that their rights are upheld is always more important. Sure, we want to help the kids, but what gets in the way is that we don't don't put the children's interests above that of adults because it's the adults who have essentially been making the rules, and when people make the rules, they generally make the rules to accommodate themselves. The kids don't make the rules about
0: schools. Adults make those rules, and adults want to make sure that they're comfortable. So, David, how do we make these adults uh, develop their ability to be more agile, experimental, empathetic and open minded? I mean, they can't get in the way of progress. It's not an easy answer to that. Right. So
1: in one sense, I would tell you that you need visionary leadership um, that that says centricity will be uh, what we are about as a system. But that's a culture change, Glenn. Mm. And changing culture is not easy. But it is doable. Uh, but it takes adults who can step out of the bounds of those systems and out of the bounds of that culture to say we're gonna we're gonna cause a, a level of transformation within that space. We're gonna begin to shift systems and take people out of their comfort zones uh, in order to make what's happening for children work better. Right now, the reason I said it's doable is because there are people who are out there who think like that, who really do want to see your, uh, young people and, and students in the center of all that we do. Very often, they're not the ones that are running the system, though. And that's where the real challenge lies. I, I ultimately see if you create a system where young people, are, their voice is truly heard and valued, that those young people become the folks who come back to the system mm. to run the system and to do it in a way that we really need to see our systems really move. But that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, You know, Frederick Douglass offered up a quote once where he said, power concedes nothing without demand. It never did and it never will. And the reality is that the adults are the ones with all the power and and it's going to take a sea change to get them to concede that power. It won't just happen just because it's the best thing to do, and we want to see it happen. It'll take a real movement to make that happen. You
2: Oh, oh, go ahead. ahead I just say I really, I really love this, and, and and basically the the visionary leadership that you're talking about it made me think, what is visionary leadership? That was the, literally the question I was going to ask you next. But then I think you just articulated it. Um, it's 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 many ways what you're doing. What I'd like to do to, to as we begin to transition into thinking more about the transformation that uh, that higher ed is going through, little alone all other sectors, is to maybe just recap um, from a visionary leader as yourself um, what the student centricity really means. I'm thinking that one of our issues is that we talk about it so much that we just assume that by taking a student and literally popping them in the middle and, and, and use words to say that our students are in the middle, that, that that's just going to be talk. I'm thinking one way that I could uh, benefit from your, your visionary leadership would be what does student centricity mean in terms of the role for the student? the role for the teacher and the role for the administrator slash finance person, you know, the people kind of running behind the scenes. What are the three roles? How has that changed in a student-centric model?
1: In a student-centered model, first of all, the, 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 the whole notion of the middle changes. Right? Generally, the way adults think about the middle, if they say we're going to have a student-centered focus, it's uh, adults who're still establishing all the rules. It's still their system. Um, but we're going to play around with this a little bit. We're going to put a few kids in the middle. We're going to hear with their opinions on a few things. But if it's truly student-centered, students help you to establish what all the parameters are. Stud- students, The students' voice, they construct the very uh, fabric of the system that we're talking about, okay. which can look very different. So let me give you an example. When, 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 when young people say, um, and there's a lot of research around this, that high school kids uh, don't do so well in terms of taking classes at 7.30 in the morning, which is where a lot of high school classes start their programming, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning. What well, is there's a lot of neuroscience that says they, they, their brains have barely woken up at that time, right? So the so students would tell you, we shouldn't be taking our first class until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, because that's when we're starting to come around and our brains are starting to wake up. Um, Adults don't want to hear that because if you start at 10, 11, that means you have a longer school day and adults want to be gone by three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Mm -hmm. See, And so, so the whole notion of centricity in a real way is something that is driven by the students, not, not the students just being placed there from time to time um,
0: almost as a photo op, if you will. David, you, you just triggered something. I would, Clearly didn't plan on going here, but but you've made it very clear to me that centricity is actually something that we should be teaching our students today so that as we help them understand how to think outside traditional norms when they're done going through their uh, their schooling journey. We hope that many of them can take that journey of centricity and then filter it back through the systems because they're the ones that understand what centricity looks like, means, and its impact. While today's adults and many administrators, they may understand it in theory, but they've never practiced it enough to understand what it can means in developing a character in leadership and the ability to play a impactful role in one's life. So anyway, I don't know if you want to. Uh, react to that but it's it yeah. almost gave me the sense that okay we haven't done this ever and there's certain groups like eagle eagle academy that specialize in this um, yet we need to scale this uh, across uh, education higher education to rebuild the systems that breed these students that can come back to these institutions and change the systems am it's i making so sense you're right. <laughs> so right glenn and and
1: And that's how you begin to transform a system um, when you engage in this very notion of centricity. Because what does centricity mean? It doesn't simply mean that who's in the middle. What it means is that the very way in which we are approaching our work, the very way in which we're approaching the world, is seen through a very different lens. And, And in order for that to happen, first of all, there are places that do this. Outside of Eagle Academy, there are places that do it even better than we do that have been practicing this way of, the, of educating young people um, with a with notion of centricity is, is tantamount to really helping students understand deeply um, concepts. And so here's the challenge. The challenge is, um, while I think we recognize that it is the way to go, again, it's an issue of power. It's an issue of, of tradition. Uh, people have been used to doing things the way they've been doing it. And so you need visionary leaders who would come in who, who have to upset the way that we have been doing things. Yeah, that's not are. easy to find. Um, because somebody has to make the decision that we're going to shift. Yeah, Somebody well, has yeah. to make the decision, that we're going to turn this over to some young people who've gone through a, 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 a centricity kind of approach to say, okay, we're not going to let you
0: take the lead. But somebody's got to give a power to do that. And that's yeah. That's that's the big part of the issue. Well, and this comes back to uh, uh, leadership in the age of personalization. Why we need yes. to move from tribal to human, we need to stop uh, creating these silos of people that have power and influence. uh, And that's why you're doing what you're doing, because as the silo breaker, you know the need to eliminate uh, that way of operating and leading because it slows progress down, creates a heck of a lot more confusion. And the ones who are losing in the process uh, are the students. So let's shift gears now to uh, transformation. You brought it up. So uh, a big question here, uh, David, how do we start to redefine the ways we measure uh, the ROI of education? What are your thoughts? I mean, especially given what we've all experienced in 2020. First of all, I think um,
1: it is critical that across this nation, we began to reassess uh, um, the, the ROI, the return on investment of what, what the educational experience is. Um, and I think it has a lot more to do with what uh, our young people being able to demonstrate what they know and are able to do. The way the system is set up now is is a system that's set up really on standardization, taking you know standardized exams, um, which don't really measure what you really know, and they certainly don't measure what your ability to to do is. Um, um, they're very, just very, very much an abstract term. Um, I think if you, if we really want to develop an American population that are critical thinkers, right, who, who will challenge the status quo, um, then that means you've got to, you, your, your approach to teaching has to change and how we measure that. Students I think should be engaged in capstone projects, portfolio-based assessments interactive uh, uh, teaching and learning uh, programs, uh, working together on interdisciplinary projects. I mean, to me, you know, it, because that, that fosters teamwork, you can build in competition as well, um, because kids are driven very often by competition as well, but, 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 but the culmination of all that you've done in a course should not just rest on just one single exam, and that is how the full measure uh, of, of how you are valued is determined i think we have short changed ourselves that's an old system it is outdated um and so to me the real the real measure of uh or the return on investment is about what do you really know and how do we know that you know it right hmm. I, don't, I think so much about how many people in this country don't vote in local elections so true don't, don't vote in state elections don't vote even when we have our presidential elections for all the huge turnout that we had in the most recent elections the largest turnout is still the, the, the largest number is still represented by the people who didn't vote.
0: Okay.
1: So think about if we actually had a system where we were modeling where kids were, in fact, the center of what we do. As we talk about the political landscape in our country, we're hearing student voice. Students get to interview and talk to local, elective, local state and national officials about what the real issues of the day are. And if you're doing that from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, imagine the kind of enlightened young person who's coming out of our schools who now becomes what we say we're about, which is to have informed, engaged citizens. Every school in America says we're trying to develop informed, engaged citizens. News alert. No, they're not. (laughs) They're not. We're playing around on the margins. Far too many of our young people have no clue what's going on because we spent uh, an entire K through 12 system and we haven't developed the right skills for the 21st century economy. We haven't helped them to even understand how to be civically engaged. They don't know what a city councilman does. They don't barely can tell you what a congressman does, the yeah. different houses of government. It's, it's, it's unbelievable what we have done and the amount of money that we have spent. The return on investment has not been there. I I contended that we can shift that entire system. You can get a much greater return on your investment. And that return says we will have young people who understand how the economy works. They understand how power works, how government works, and they can take their rightful place in society and be the leaders that we need. We're not investing in them at all.
0: Not in that process. So, So how do we mobilize those types of things in K through 12? I mean, who does, who do we need to be partnering with? Uh, David, who, who, who? How do we get uh, corporate America involved? What, what role does healthcare play? I mean, let's look at the bigger, broader ecosystem rather than the sector of education. What? Do we need to do to get others of influence involved to start making these tangible changes? Because what you're talking about are central to life and death. I mean, if you don't know the reality around you until finally you wake up in high school, maybe, and then college, too much time has passed. I mean, we need people to we need these students to be aware and mindful of the changing world around them earlier in their life. So. What, what do we need to do here?
1: And I got news for you. For, we have people who are graduating from our colleges and universities, and they don't have a clue either um, because they've not been engaged in this process either. It's been a continuation. So it's not just a K-12 problem. It's a K-16 problem and beyond. Um, what do we need to do? We need to, we need to create the coalition of the willing, right? We need to figure out those who are actually engaged in this space and to bring them together what I I call the coalition of the willing. Um, Somebody has to play the role, though, of connecting the dots. Somebody has to have the vision to say, okay, I'm going to, first of all, identify the organizations that are doing this work, who are conscious, who are trying to do it the right way, and I'm going to bring them together. You know why that's so important, Glenn? is because... A lot of these groups are out there and they're just doing it on their own. They're working in silos. Yep. They're fighting the good fight. But they often burn out after a period of time because the problem becomes too overwhelming. They, they need somebody to come that will say, you know, these folks over here in Detroit are getting it right. These folks at Eagle Academy in New York, they're doing the right thing. We're forming an alliance that's going to bring all of you folks together so that we can learn from each other. We can support one another. You know, when you, when you feel like you're out there by yourself, you can burn out. When you realize that there are others out there who are just like you, um, they add fuel. Uh, and that's how you create movements. Um, and once those organizations who've already been working can come together, then you can start to pull in elected officials. Then you can start to pull in these other government officials in corporate America um, to help them to understand how we can actually begin to make a difference. But here's the challenge, though, as well. Here's another challenge with it, Glenn. Another part of the challenge is that a lot of people contend that the reason we don't have this level of transformation is because the system was not designed to have a woke population. Because guess what? When you start to have folks who are really conscious and paying attention, a lot of those people who are sitting as elected officials don't get to stay in those seats. A lot of those people who are sitting in their positions in corporate America start to find that they're being challenged as well, right? Because you now have a new generation of young people who are saying, why are we doing this this way? It can be done a very different way. So there's some people you have to remember, the system does work for some people and it generally works for those who are part of the status quo. They're not anxious to make transformational change because that oftentimes represents a threat to their own standing. So you gotta recognize that that's part of what we're dealing with as well.
0: Well, and in, 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 uh, what I can add to that, uh, David, is that um, there are hundreds of thousands of young men and women in this country, throughout the world, who are uh-huh. suffering in silence. In other words, they know, right. they're more aware now of the fact that they're confined to systems Don't let them express themselves, be themselves. Uh, They're they're tired of having to learn all the answers without understanding the questions uh, that they should be asking. So I just bring this up because I believe and I love the way you said this, this coalition of the willing. I personally think it's forming right before our eyes um, in pockets all across America who are eager and willing to have a different kind of conversation that leads us to action. Um, I think the, the biggest opportunity that we have is to recognize that now we need to look at the more broader, more interconnected perspectives so that we can co design the path forward. So I just yeah. share this, David, because when you're ready for me, I'm ready to introduce you to key leaders in healthcare in corporate America that must be part of this. And I can tell you from a perspective of uh, the young, uh, uh, both men and women of, of color, Uh, There are corporations that are right now changing their corporate responsibility strategies, recognizing that these are the populations of the future that they had claimed in the past to know a lot about, only to learn in 2020 uh, that they're just getting started about learning what that looks like. (laughs) So right. um, anyway, so I'm ready to be part of this, uh, this coalition of the willing because uh, what you're doing, uh, David, and the way you're thinking about things and the great work at uh, Eagle Academy and others, uh, we need to start looking beyond our sector and our silo. So this now takes us to this fundamental question. What does inclusion look like to you, to your organization, into education? And think about this well beyond just compliance. What does this mean to you? And why is it so important? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When we think about inclusion
1: and, and, and the very notion of inclusion is one in which you realize that you need to have a myriad of voices that, are, that, are, that, that sit with you at the foundation of everything that you try and do. The, the greater level of diversity of voices, um, the more perspective you have as decisions are being made. But, but, but that level of inclusion says to people, you matter. And I cannot tell you how important that is, that when people feel respected, when people feel like they are part of a process, um, they... They will run harder than you could have imagined because they feel like they are part of it. When people don't feel like they are part of a process um, and they feel like they're just being discounted, disrespected, at worst, they work against the process. Because, because respect is a fundamental like human uh, emotion. And, and and inclusion represents the notion that I respect you. I see you, you need to be at this table. I'm not just gonna make decisions for you. You need to be here also helping us making to make decisions together. So you start thinking about inclusion even as a growth strategy, right? It's critically important if you are really trying to grow for real impact, see, you can grow around the margins and, and, and leave other folks on the side and not include them. But if you're really growing for transformational change, you have to have an inclusion, inclusion as a growth strategy because it's those voices, they help you recognize, no, number one, here's another newsflash, you don't know everything right? It starts from that. It's a healthy perspective to say, you know, I've got my own perspectives, but I don't know it all. And, and the more people that I can get in a room with their varying perspectives and a level of diversity of thought, um, that level of inclusion starts out from the foundation. I don't know it all, but getting you all at the table will help us to ultimately achieve what we're trying to achieve. At the very least, it'll give us the best chance. It'll give us a better chance. Then if it's just me thinking I'm going to come up with all the ideas uh, to solve whatever problem. Um, and so I think I think inclusion says not just to an individual, it says oftentimes to whole demographics of people uh, that you matter. And, I, and I've seen people work and actively work against a system um, and against innovation when they feel that they have not been included. So that certainly doesn't help your strategy. If you're trying to achieve something and you've got a whole group of people who you have marginalized because you haven't even included them now, not only are they that part of your process, they're working against your process. That doesn't seem to be the smartest thing um, to me. And so I, I'm a big believer in inclusion as a growth strategy. Uh, absolutely. So
0: why is it that education... Hasn't been inclusive enough. Why do we always stay inside our stay inside our silo, our sector? What are we afraid of? Human, human beings are um,
1: used to the silos. So you got to be, let's think about silos for a minute. Silos are a place where we're very comfortable, right? If, when you're in the silo, um, silos are feel good. But do they? You're talking to the people who look like you. They sound like you. You know, everybody's agreeing with you. (laughs) Right. Like what's 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 wrong with this picture? Um, So I think you have to understand.
2: I was going to say, but is that totally true in terms of like the silo? Is it is it maybe that we think it's comfortable or we're supposed to be comfortable in a silo? Because when I'm in a silo, I feel very uncomfortable. And and I feel like I'm in, I'm acting again as opposed to to being myself. And so I'm just kind of curious. Like, is that really something that we we feel comfortable with, or are we just telling ourselves that we should feel comfortable? And if we don't, we just sort of bury it in. I just wanted to think
1: about that. That's a good that's, that's a good point, Scott. And I and I, I wouldn't tell you that I have all the answers um, because you are somebody who may be uncomfortable in a silo, But there are lots of people I think who are very comfortable. Fair in enough. The- And sometimes they become less comfortable in the silo when they become more aware uh, of things outside of the silo. Right. And so when you've had some level of consciousness raising, like you've seen the other side of the world, but imagine if your whole world is just that block that you live on, just that little community that you're in. And if you don't know anything beyond that, then you're comfortable in that, in that space. But if you've got some exposure outside of that, you've seen a diversity of thought you've 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 been you know in company of folks who think differently and move differently all of a sudden you're not so comfortable being in your silo and so um that's what people are afraid of uh and and again it goes back glenn to this notion that there are people who benefit from individuals staying in their silos silos represent status quo okay and 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 when you look at the folks who march in the Capitol, um, you know they were expressing an anger that they were feeling, right? And for for many of these people, they're people who have been in their silo. They've been used to being in their silo. Their silo is comfortable, and when they look around and they see these other things happening, they see it as a threat to their silo, yeah. I.e., their way of life. Um, as opposed to seeing it as exciting new opportunities. Exactly. They get afraid. So, somebody like Scott sees it as great new opportunities. I'm not comfortable standing in the silo. Others not only are comfortable, but they feel threatened by the dismantling of the silo. And when they feel threatened, they will respond accordingly. And what you saw is an extreme example of people res- responding. Um, in a way that says, yeah. we are used to our way of life and we don't want any threat to that. And we see people coming into the country. We see folks talking about we need to change the curriculum in schools. We see people saying, well, why do we why can't we take a knee to protest police violence when, when we're doing a national anthem? And they see all of that as an assault on their way of life and the way that they think. So what are they afraid of? They're afraid of changing their status quo.
0: That's that's what it is. You know, David, I think this takes us to the closing question for you. And then we'll go around the, around the horn here. How do we, you've described so eloquently, boy, I wish that this was a segment on the national news. You, you have perfectly described during this conversation why we need to move from the extremes of standardization and personalization. These forces are so powerful right now, but they're operating in the extremes because they're not learning how to co-exist and co-design the future. How do we find some sense of balance? How do we go from the extremes to balance? How do we get there in, in education, David? How do we start that process? Leadership. It's leadership from the top down and from the bottom up, right?
1: It's the people who get it. What I mean when I say that coalition of the willing starting to move and starting to connect with each other, right? It, when, you see a, when you see a police officer who can put his knee on the neck of a man, right? until a life goes out of him. That's because in engaging in that act, he, he doesn't see that that man is another human being. He doesn't see him at the same level that he sees himself. He, he somehow thinks that that person is less than he is. Right? So changing that requires changing mindset. The mindset shift has to happen in order to change mindset shift. It does not happen overnight. It's a slow process. But it's a process that we must be engaged in. It's a process, but which says that we've got to begin to change the curricula that we're teaching our young people in our schools. Um, one of the things, as I talk about in terms of, you know, even Black Lives Matter movement and whatnot, you know, t- people being exposed to the contributions of African Americans in this country. There are lots of people who go to school from K through 16 and never learn anything about it. They don't understand about the fact that. America was built on stolen land, right, of the indigenous people. There are folks who have no idea what that even means, right? So there's not been a broad exposure to the truth about what America really is. And the only way you're going to be able to move in a, in a, in a truly transformational way is until we tell the truth. And, uh, and America is not comfortable with telling the truth. That, that's why we stay in these silos. That's why we play around on the margins. But if you really want America to stand up and be all that it is supposed to be, it starts with truth. A lot of people say that they, they, they want peace, but what they really want is quiet. <laughs> and you can't just be quiet. You've got to tell the truth in order for us to fundamentally move forward. Otherwise, we will continue to be bogged down by this contradiction that America represents as this great democracy and a land of freedom. But yeah, not really for everybody. Um, But let's not talk about that. Let's just keep moving on.
0: You know, you can't can't do that until we're prepared to tell the truth as a nation. You know what, uh, Scott, I'm going to ask you to wrap this up for us in just a minute. Um, But David, you have (laughs) pointed out uh, th- this very uh, unfortunate truth. Um, we've had plenty of opportunity to get us back on the right path for a long time. Just too much work gets in ways of people's agendas, makes life easier for people. Life isn't easy. It's hard. And, you know, we, we know this as black and brown communities. But I think this pandemic has awakened us all to understand what adversity really means. And henceforth, uh, we have to find a way quickly. I mean, the luxury of time is over to find a shared mission again, because that's what's going to bring unity. But that's going to also bring a lot of discomfort in the process of reclaiming our way to dignity and decency because we're making up for lost time, poor decisions and flat out bad leadership. And David, I want to just thank you so much uh, for your contribution today. I, I got chills because you represent what leadership really means and not because of having any agenda. It's because you care about students. You care about America. You care about what's right, and you've seen what's wrong for much too long. So I really thank you for being so open with us today, David. Thank you very, very much. Scott, take it to another dimension for us, and then, David, you can close it with some final comments. Scott? Good, um, David. I think one of the
2: things that I'm picking up today is um, essentially if we take this not just for education, but take it out a little bit to a lot of the societal kind of um, opportunities that we have at our hands here. I think, David, what I'm hearing from you is that, is, is that you found ways as a leader to help groups and societies move from the the talk to the walk right? Which is very important. And I think in many regards, when we think about just education and the way that we've talked about it today with the way that that, that you have a student-centric uh, ethos that just permeates Eagle Academy, um, what we're talking about here is that we've, we've shifted first from a teaching- to students what to think. You're talking about the content. That was what schools did. Just what to think. And the deal is we knew and we still know, but we knew this before that that really isn't how to innovate. That isn't how to grow society or as a community or as a future, uh, a, a sort of a, a, a future healthy society. For me, what I'm thinking is that, that the shift from talk to walk is the problem that all social movements deal with, right? That we can see the problem, And we always know it's there. This is something Glenn talks about in in the C-suite. But then what we do is we do the talking and we assume that talking is walking. So when I hear about you talking about the need for for visionary leadership, this is what you gave to me in terms of how do leaders go from talking to walking. And in higher ed, it goes like this. Right. We used to think we used to people teach people what to think. Right. And that was it. We let go of that as we started talking. So instead we started saying, oh, let's teach people uh, what, um, how to think. I think we're going to stay in the talk. If we keep teaching people what or how to think, because automatically we're still putting our ideas forward as the adults or as the older people in the room saying, this is how you do this. This is how you fix the world. Say we fixed it wrong. So this is how you fix it. That's, that's a non-starter where we are is not how to think, But this happens at Eagle Academy. Why? Why to think? And if why to think is our first level, we can then move to the, how to think, but not how we think they should think. We can be the guides of how they can put their thinking together to address this why to think. And the beauty of that, as I close, is that we get to get rid of the what to think because that's just a given, right? And instead we're, we're doing about what to contribute. Right. Because we're leading them to that process to be a, a, a civic, a civic scholar, so to speak. And just my final little quick one, which is my personal gift from you today, which is awesome. I love I got put into my place in a beautiful way that is going to astound me for days and, and in a very kind way. You help me see that I actually siloed myself in a group of non siloers. And I saw how dangerous that is because I was totally overlooking the positivity or at least the value for some people of the silo, which makes it impossible for me to build a bridge to them because I'm so busy being a non-siloer that I've siloed myself as a non-siloer. So I know that's kind of silly, but bottom line, thank you for getting me out of this silo
0: I didn't know I was in. (laughs) Powerful, Scott. Dave, you want to give us some closing comments? i don't know how much more i can offer after that from
1: scott's wrap up i think he said he has said it all um you know i i i really decided to live my life in the space of not just trying to eloquently tell everybody about what the problems are but to try to be in the problem-solving space and in doing that i have aligned myself with other people who are like-minded in that regard that we are trying to solve problems and not simply trying to be on the next panel discussion or conference table to talk about what the problems are. I watched that for years. I got so turned off uh, from watching one speaker after another, see if they could outdo each other and who was more eloquent and, and appealing to the crowd to say what the problem is. And you'd walk away from a three hour conference and they didn't tell you one thing that we could do to actually try to change the problem. And we got very comfortable in that space of just talking about the problems. It's its own form of silo. Again, comfortable, I'm really good at this. I don't have any answers. I just, I, but I, re, I can tell you in all kinds of fancy ways what the problem is. But I wanted to be in that space of people who are outside of that who are saying, we certainly don't have the answers, but we are going to be in the space of trying to figure it out uh, because we know why we need to figure it out. Now we need to come up with the ways and the strategies to do it. And Eagle Academy is a prime example. We had no idea what we were doing. We put one foot in front of the other because I believe that God blesses you in your movement. I don't think that these things come to you when you're just sitting on a, on a couch and then it's like, well, uh, you know, it, it hit me. It, it happens as you put one foot in front of the next and then you, you'll be introduced by somebody who brings you another piece of information and then you meet a good Glenn Lopez, and he gives you another perspective. And it's that movement that the enlightenment comes, not in one shot, but over a course of time. And over that course of time, you can build things like Eagle Academy and so many other things that can, in fact, have a a great impact on the lives of so many people. And so many of those people you impact will be the ones to take that work to a whole different level that you can't even imagine right now. So what do we do? We put one foot in front of the other we keep moving and every day that we're here is still a blessing uh and while i'm being blessed to be here every day and still have my health i can i will be committed to continue to press forward as much as i possibly
0: can for as long as i can david you're an incredible inspiration thank you so much and uh let's we'll be continuing the conversation very soon and remember i'm there to support you any way i can thank you very much david both of you, my brothers, I appreciate you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit AgeOfPersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopes. I wish you a good day, and remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.